NovSB in Lisbon, I am Philippe Alfayat, and this is the Sustainability and Impact Global Series. From climate change to poverty, hunger, racism or gender inequality, business are increasingly called to step up and be part of the solution. But kind words and one-off projects alone will not cut it. In this series of eight episodes, we'll do a deep dive into Africa, checking how some enterprises are serving the consumers at the bottom of the pyramid. The tools they use, the challenges they face, how they adapt their pricing, marketing, distribution to commercial reach a growing market of more than 2.5 billion people globally. I'm passionate about unleashing the power of business to solve global challenges. It has been the focus of my work across more than 35 countries in the past decades, either as an adjunct professor, entrepreneur, a consultant or a policy advisor. And it is with the fuel from that exact passion that we put together this series, which is a collaborative effort with my talented students and great teaching team. You see, in the past two school years, a mix of students from all over the world that attended my course on leading impact enterprises in international development produced podcasts where they applied the course's learning to real enterprises. They did outstanding work, and the best six podcasts will be at the center of this series and its debates. Today's episode takes us to Harvest Plus, a global leading research center on biofortification, meaning developing food crops that contain more minerals and vitamins. Harvest Plus wants to free the world of hidden hunger by actively adding micronutrients to the diets of those 2 billion people globally suffering from hidden hunger. In this episode, we'll examine how to connect innovation and research within markets and bottom of the period consumers and distribution. I'm here with Daniela Afonso, the teaching assistant of our course and leading force behind this podcast. Hi, Daniela, how are you? I'm fine, you? Great, I'm, I'm great. I really enjoyed this, the, the work that these students put together. Me too. And I, I think we're just discussing this before. I think it's, it's of great assistance for all the students that are interested in this topic, the researchers that are trying to move forward, and even for practitioners that work in this area, because it's a podcast about how to unleash the power of business to fight a social problem, in this, in this case, hidden hunger, which is a, a massive problem. Um, but they are not a business, they are a research center. So they have, they bring to us this idea of an ecosystem. So I really, I really like that, the importance of the ecosystem. How about you? What do you think were the most, most important, the most juicy points? Mm -hmm. If I have to highlight one, then um, absolutely the moment when the founder explores the kind of challenges that he finds uh, when operating in markets that are already not functioning very well. He touches upon mm -hmm. a, a government side of view, but also, um, and here I bring this to, the, to our conversation now, which is related to the hostile infrastructure that they find when trying to work mm -hmm. in extremely rural areas right. where transportation is not yet developed, right? Absolutely. And it's it sometimes, you know, in, in, 
Europe, in the United States, in many countries, we talk about innovation, you think about tech, right? But we're talking about innovation here. It's just like how you deal with hostile infrastructure. You have to innovate. You have to go around the problems that you have. And these are one of the principles that we teach at the class from Prahalad, the innovation principles. And I think it's interesting that you focus on that because uh, sometimes you need to understand how difficult it is to, to overcome this hostile inf infrastructure. Definitely. And here uh, it can be as simple as uh, trying to focus on groups that are already related to the product that we are trying to that are trying to bring to the market, right? So they are a health-related product. And so they decided to target mother groups mm -hmm. that were being capacitated by local hospitals in health-related aspects. Mm -hmm. So I believe this is very smart, simple, and smart and exactly. effective. Exactly, right? I agree. I agree because if you don't have channels, you have to be creative. So these groups were related to health, were not related to agribusiness, but they were able to test their agribusiness products and, and help and get information to help them to design better products by tapping into this network that already existed because they found that there was a link between them, that they were creative and they found this. And there's many examples throughout throughout this podcast. And I think the best thing is for us to give the floor to the, the, the team that put this together. I want to acknowledge their their names. Uh, Olivia Suchi, Florian Engels, Marlon Wanders, Sinet Disler, Juan Munoz, Jarmil Vedadi, and I want to congratulate them for their work. Apologize if I mispronounce your your name. Uh, and just let's uh, listen to the work they put together, yes, right? Yes, yes, yes. Welcome to another episode of the podcast stream from Leading Social Enterprises. I'm Zina, and today I will have an interesting discussion with Oli, who is here with me. Yeah, hi, thanks, Zina. Um, to start off, I would like to share a short clip with you that I found on the internet the other day. So, Zina, did you understand what they were talking about? No, actually not. Why are you showing this to me? <laughs> so this was recorded in Zimbabwe and those people are talking about a special variety of sweet potatoes. And the reason why I'm showing this to you is because today's episode is all about an organization which is called Harvest Plus. So shortly, for those of you who don't know Harvest Plus, it's an organization and their mission is to fight hidden hunger by improving traditional crops. This process they are using is called biofortification. Oh yeah, and maybe we can add that they are also part of this big global agriculture system, which is called CGIAR, which is a global research partnership for a food secure future. And we had the possibility to talk to Benjamin, who worked for them for the past eight years. So I would say let's hear him introduce him company by himself. In the 1960s, the CGIAR was part of the work to reduce famine around the world. But what happened during that time is that we increased the quantity, but we did not increase the quality of the seeds and the foods in terms of nutritional content. So over time, something happened called hidden hunger. And that was when people were able to eat sufficient quantities of food, but that food did not contain sufficient micronutrients, things like vitamin A, iron, and zinc, which are very important micronutrients to people's health. So my former colleague and mentor, Howdy Lewis, asked a question. What if the plants that people already grow, they already eat, they already 
have supply chains for and already have farming techniques and already have grandma's recipes around these crops. What if we just made those same crops naturally more nutritious and then slowly work our way further and further down the value chain to be sure that this innovation could go all the way from the farm to the fork. So our mission is to work with partners to tackle hidden hunger on a global scale by breeding vitamins and minerals into everyday food crops and building sustainable food systems to bridge the gap between agriculture and nutrition and build a more resilient food system. Thanks for the introduction, Benjamin. Can you tell us more about the functionality of Harvest Plus? It would be particularly interesting to hear who pays and who delivers your products. Yeah, well, we started functioning as part of this global agriculture system that I described to you. And that global agriculture system, it's its like the United Nations. You know, we exist as international organizations that are under special uh, status in, in the countries. where That's good and bad. That creates some benefit in that we are able to work around the world and we are able to work on behalf of the public and everything that we do is publicly available, meaning nothing that we do is controlled in that we wouldn't give it away. To, but that can present some specific challenges when you want to go from research and development and policy, which are typically typically things that exist within a public sector domain and scaling innovations that come from the public sector through the private sector. There are not many examples around the world, products that have been developed in the public sector and then have been scaled through the private sector. That was the challenge for Harvest Plus. How do we take a publicly developed and owned concept and extend it out and, and create a value proposition for farmers and for businesses and for consumers? You asked who pays. The initial research and development to enhance these varieties nutritionally, that's paid for for by mechanism that exists within the World Bank. Global governments around the world give money to the United Nations, give money to the World Bank, and part of that funding goes towards for the work of the CGIAR. In addition, there's some funds that come from specific donor governments, the UK government, the US government, the German government, the Dutch government. But once you move beyond the research, the questions you ask becomes who starts to pay. When we work in a country that has a functioning seed system where farmers pay for seeds, we work through that existing system so that farmers pay for seeds. How do we do that? We work with seed companies to get them to adopt these new product lines into the work that they're doing. And then they sell those seeds to farmers. We work to build the overall market for these commodities because they are commodities. So we start to say Harvest Plus might mitigate the, the risk and support and incentivize a seed company to take up this product by, for example, running an advertising campaign that promoted this new nutritious crop so that then that would help drive the sales of the seed company, help drive the sales of the agri-dealer, and then help farmers know about this crop, purchase those seeds, grow it, and sell that crop. That's how we originally began when it came to marketing the seeds. But it is important to note that all of these things happen commercially. We do our best to try and not subsidize the market. It needs to be done commercially in a profit-sensitive manner and a impact-sensitive manner so that we're achieving both our impact goals and revenue generation goals, because if you're not able to generate revenue, it certainly won't be sustainable in the long term. Thank you. That's really interesting. My next question is regarding distribution of the crops. Does it work in a profitable way? And is it possible to distinguish in what way Harvest Plus is self-sustainable or in what way is dependent on outside support for for example, through the World Bank and different governments? It depends on the market. In India, this functions very well. There are existing um, channels whereby seed companies work with agri-dealers and those seeds get out into the market in a very sustainable way. In some other places, it becomes more of a challenge because the market itself is not functioning very well. That could be for a number of issues. Sometimes that's because the national government might be subsidizing the agricultural sector. And unfortunately, that can create some disincentives for 
private sector to begin to to scale. And secondly, and very importantly, we are working in extremely rural areas in which infrastructure, specifically rural infrastructure around transport, um, has not extended very well. So informational networks in a rural place in, let's say, for example, East Africa, informational networks, you can get on your cell phone, you can get any sort of information you need. You might know there's seed available in your country, in your region, in your state, in your province, but it can be very hard to get that last mile distribution. So what we do is we use a lot of innovative techniques. So we ask ourselves, because we're in health and agriculture, we work with mothers groups. Hospitals organize these mothers groups where mothers come together and learn about things like breastfeeding. How do you... Uh, uh, cook nutritious meals? How do you educate your children? These types of things. Well, we use those existing mothers groups to give them seeds or help capacitate one of those mothers to become a seed producer so that she can then produce and sell those seeds to other mothers. That's how fortification works. But what we do is the means of production is actually in the rural area and then needs to extend into the urban area. And in doing that, hopefully there's also an exchange of revenue so that the rural area is able to capture greater economic returns and the urban area is able to get increased access to nutrition. But that last mile of distribution is very market dependent based off of uh, where you are and what the existing systems are in which you're working. So your capability to scale made it possible to shift around resources where they're needed the most and sort of cover up for areas where it's even harder to generate profits, right? Mm, the next question is concerning beneficiaries. For how many of them are you making the product accessible and available? And in regard to that, how do you actually measure the impact generated? Currently, we have reached 40 million households who are currently growing and doing biofortified crops. That's a, that's a huge number when you look at the scale of, of social impact innovations such as this. The only other industry I know of that has similar numbers are, are education-based innovation. It's fairly straightforward to scale a curriculum. Um, because it's not a physical. Um, so we've reached 40 million people, but that's about continuing to have farmers who come back and repeat purchase. And it's about also having new customers and also extending into new markets. We currently work in around 10 countries in the world, but we have released crops in over 100 countries. So in all these other 100 countries, it's about, as you said, where are we needed? Where are we not needed? And how do we ensure the resources go to the areas that require additional support? And how do we ensure that in areas that are more commercially oriented, those actors are sufficiently educated and, and aligned together to upscale this technology. How do we measure impact? We do that in a number of different ways. We are a research institute, and so we're very extremely in-depth when it comes to the monitoring, evaluation, and also impact evaluation, because we don't do this as a business would or a normal social enterprise would, because the way in which we do things, we are essentially building templates for others to take up. So we're paid as researchers to develop these methodologies for measuring impact in agricultural interventions. So we do it and we teach others to do it as well. We have now proven that this is an effective intervention. So we, for example, have done nutrition studies with global leading researchers where we do feeding trials in India and in Zambia and Bangladesh, where we work in a slum, the low resource environment, people are living and, you know, mothers will get bags of food that they then take and feed to their children. And we measure blood content of iron and vitamin A and, and have very detailed methodologies that we're developing with researchers so that we can show others how you measure nutritional impact. And we also do things like we test 
the cognitive ability of children. So for example, in India, children were fed high iron pro millet chapati, like roti, um, like flatbreads. And after they were sufficiently nourished by eating these biofortified chapatis, they had improved cognition, meaning their, their ability to think, problem solve, complete tests um, was improved. And so we're doing very, very, very rigorous evaluation that I, I don't think we, um, normally advisable for a social enterprise, given we get, we get funding to, to do that. I believe that it must be hard changing behavior patterns of people. Was there something that you experienced when you were trying to make people grow your crops instead of the ones they used before? Our approach to behavior change was to try and limit the amount of behaviors that needed or required changing. As I mentioned earlier, the goal was if you're a maize grower in Zambia or you're a sweet potato grower in Uganda or you're a rice farmer in Indonesia, we want to come to you with the crop you're already working. We're not coming and saying you need to grow quinoa. We're coming and saying, hey, you're already a rice farmer. You, every three years, you already buy new varieties of seed. And so how about next time you're ready to buy a new variety of seed? Why not choose one that performs great, tastes really good, has a good grain size, is disease and pest resistant. And the final differential is that it has good nutrition. Key to marketing this and key to reducing the barriers to adoption from farmers was showing them how this product was, in essence, very similar to the products they already knew, they were already familiar with, but better. Farmers, first and foremost, concern for their product on the seed side is always yield. How much can this product in my yield? And second might be how much it might cost, how much land they might have to allocate towards that. But we were introducing a new concept. So as long as we were able to answer their original questions, oh, is this high yielding? Yes, it is. Is this resistant to my local pests and diseases? Yes, it is. Oh, okay. I'm, I'm feeling pretty good then. Well, let me tell you, Mrs. Farmer, that in addition to having these great characteristics that you're already concerned about, this product also tastes better than your existing product. And here, have a sample and try it and tell me for yourself. And then on top of that, this product will improve the nutrition of yourself, your children, your family, and your community. Try this, learn about the power of nutrition and see how this can affect you and your family. Okay. And this might be a tricky question, but how do you see the balance between profit and impact at Harvest Plus? What I can say is that Harvest Plus as an organization and it's supposed to do public good. Our goal is not revenue generation for Harvest Plus, but our goal is, in addition to our nutritional impact, ensuring that partners and, and stakeholders can sustainably generate revenue from this intervention. We, therefore, as Harvest Plus, take the role of an intermediate. What this means is we're introducing a product, but our goal is to get others to uptake this product and for them to sustainably generate revenue over time and scale this nutritionally positive product to have a positive health impact in the world. So you can be in a place where there is not a partner or in a place where there is a partner. In either case, though, it's important to have those three things. An overall case for revenue generation for biofortified varieties in that market, the ability to embed through partnership or joint venture agreement, you know, the business within the local context, and then also ensure that we do this revenue generation in a way that supports the intervention, but then that revenue is plowed back into the entity and stays locally available available so that that program can continue to scale over time in a, in a sustainable manner. And maybe to add another a little bit discomforting question, did you ever have a moment where you experienced failure? And if yes, what did you learn from it? There is great power in failure. Similarly, in other places, I wouldn't say that we failed, 
but we have done what an NGO is not supposed to do and that we have succeeded to the point of no longer being needed. That's the example in Rwanda where we reached 20% of the market and it became abundantly clear that once we have achieved that level, we needed to remove ourselves from the market. Why continue to exist if others were taking it on, others were taking up the product and we were sort of, in essence, able to say mission achieved. Um, I think a big learning from that is that we need to build programs in a way that gives them an exit strategy over time so that you can pass along to others. I think for me personally, as I said at the beginning, you know, I was involved in being in a healthcare set and in a healthcare setting that was with people who didn't have much and with without the ability to provide them with proper medical supplies. And, and to me, I felt a great failure at that time because I thought I had a developed skills and put myself in a position to be able to, to provide care at that time for people who needed it. And I wasn't able to do that. And without going into details, it, it touched me very deeply because I was not able to help people in the way that I'd hoped to and saw the results of that in front of us. But that failure gave me the freedom to then try again and realize that you need to remove the fear of failure and continue to come back every day and try to improve over and over again and iterate so to better yourself, your product, your business, your partnerships and, and innovate, improve the impact for, for consumers around the world. You cannot be ideological about how you go about these things, but you can be ideological about your desire to make change. Here's my intervention. It's biofortification. It's the only one. It's the best one. And it always needs to be right. No, to be willing to fail, I need to be willing to work with biofortification in a country and have it not work. And maybe another thing does work. And I say, you know what? That means that other thing was the best for that situation. I need to be willing to fail, willing to move on and willing to continue to, to iterate. Thank you, Benjamin. It was a pleasure. Bye-bye. Thank you all from my side. Bye. So, Zina, what do you think about what we've just heard? I think it was a really, really nice talk. And it's amazing what they're doing and the impact they're having. The only thing that wonders me is where they are not in a social enterprise. Wouldn't they sustain a great level of independence through generating most of their business revenue themselves to become safe, sustainable and not needing to rely on others? Well, I do see your point, but I think it's never that easy to position yourself between impact and profit. There are many drivers that affect this. If we look at Harvest Plus and the example of Rwanda, after they had accomplished their vision, they left the country. I think such an exit strategy is much more easy to accomplish if not dependent on generating money and further growth. So they introduced their program to the market and then let it grow organically, through which the market becomes independent from them. I really like that perspective. I think that's actually perfect to conclude with today's episode. So I learned from today's interview that there are different aspects on how you can look on the balance between social impact and profitability. Exactly. So guys, stay tuned for our next week's episode of Leading Social Enterprises. Bye. See ya. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Sustainability and Impact Global series. Please follow this podcast on Spotify and on Nova's SB platform, Road to Play, and be part of this community working to unleash the power of business to solve global challenges one day at a time.